Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today we have another different guest podcast. Since 2011, the Association of Professional Futurists has recognised the best student work from institutions that participate in their annual recognition program. The recognition program is open to universities offering undergraduate, master's or PhD programs or degrees in foresight or future studies. If any listener would like their institution to participate, then please contact the APF, but there'll also be some contact details on this podcast page. Quite remarkably, in this year's Master's Award, there was a tied result. And coincidentally, both students were also studying together in the same program at the University of Houston. At FuturePod, we have had guests who've run those programs, like the Houston program, and many of our guests have graduated from programs like the Houston program. But just for a change, we're going to talk to a couple of the current students, specifically the joint winners of the Best Master's Student Work for 2021. Heather Benoit is the Executive Vice President of Strategic Foresight at SGR, where she spearheads a foresight program aimed at helping local governments prepare for the future. Prior to that, Heather served as the Futures and Insight Lead at M3 Design, where she led Futures Research in an effort to inform product portfolios and advance innovation. JT Mudge is a Director of Technology and Data Strategy at Product Ops and specialises in data-driven decision-making and long-term strategies for companies involved in sustainabilities and ESG. His work includes consulting with the Nature Conservancy on fisheries-related issues and technology, including data systems and artificial intelligence. Welcome to FuturePod, Heather and JT. I believe you're both FuturePod listeners, so you know the first question is the story question, and everyone loves the story question. So what what's the Heather and JT story? I mean, I think this, this story is interesting. I mean, I've, I've uh, been a consultant in technology for a long time, for about 25 years, and um, you know, it can be fun. It can be exciting working with, you know, major brands like, like Apple and Samsung and, and doing exciting projects around technology. But at a certain point, you start to look around and you say, what, you know, what, what is the world around me? What is happening in this world around me? And, and am I part of something that's making a better world mm-hmm. or am I part of just churning out the world as it is? That idea had been nagging at me for probably the last five years or so. It's like, as you start to see more issues with climate change, you start to see more issues with just, just the world values and, and, and the way my children were growing up and I'm trying to be, you know, a good parent, but I, I but it's, but it's hard in, the, in this world, technology and social media. And again, with their outlook, seeing what they were seeing the future to be, right. Which was very bleak. Yeah. yeah. And so I felt like, I just had a responsibility to figure out what that change was, but I didn't really know know what that change was yet, right? It was just sort of this evolution, this idea of values, of becoming to understand my own values better. And I had the opportunity in 2019, before the world shut down, to go to Barcelona for the Smart City uh, World Expo. And I'm, I'm walking around the floor and I'm seeing just amazing, amazing stories, amazing ideas. 
And of course, smart cities just lends itself very, very well to be future oriented. And and what I saw was not just stories about the future, but then data that that drives it, right? And so for me, being a technologist and a storyteller, this was this was like the perfect fit. And so I, I realized that there were actually people that got paid to do futures. <laughs> and this, this is an actual profession. And and for me, I was like, it was like a light bulb. I, I want to do that, right? But I still want to be able to take my experience and my, and my, you know, what I'm really good at and how do I bring my 25 years of experience, but then look to shift something even larger. Luckily at, at that time, right when I got back, um, I started working with the Nature Conservancy on sustainability and fisheries around technology and data. So that was a good start, uh, to kind of matching with my values. And I had read a paper that uh, IFTF Institute for the Future did around fisheries. And I was looking at this and I'm like, this is fantastic. Again, it's data-driven, but it's very creative and engaging. And you know what what I do at my company at Product Ops and a lot of times is uh, data-driven decision-making, right? We help companies figure that out. And so what I realized is that there's this, there's this twist. It's like data-driven sense-making. And uh, that just really appealed to me. And I started looking around and I uh, called up uh, Andy at the university, Andy Hines at the University of Houston. As, we, as we're talking about the program and about futurists, uh, he said, you know, those that work in traditional consultancies or organizations that are future minded are often the odd ones out in the organizations. People don't know what to do with them. Right. Uh, and I'm like, you've just described the last 25 years of my life. And, 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 and I'm like, wait, there's a there, there's a group with other people like me, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so I realized a large, honestly, a large part of this was, was kind of selfish in my mind a little bit, but wanting to find my tribe, right? I was yeah, like, I yeah. finally found what I was looking for all these years. Uh, and a lot of people that I've met in this amazing community at the University of Houston, uh, Heather included, of course, and Heather's been a big part of, of, of where we started off. It's a community building, right? Um, and finding people that shared similar values, similar mindsets, and have a hope towards the future. So that's kind of um, my story in a nutshell and how I came came across the Foresight community. Nice. Thanks. Yeah, I think uh, my story is similar, of course, a little different, but I too was that weirdo uh, at the firm, just, you know, always off in my own space, kind of looking at the future and uh, not quite fitting into the box that everyone else was playing in. Um, so my background is actually in product development engineering. I spent my career building products and in industries from oil and gas to medical device to pet products and wearables, just really a little bit of everything. And I think what appealed to me in, in my work consulting was just the variety of all these different products and industries and really learning all the challenges they face and trying to figure out how to be innovative in their market and kind of shape the future of their product portfolio. But after several years, I kind of just got tired with, uh, you know, you design one camera and then the next camera and then the next one, each generation's a little bit better, but they're really just the same product. And how do we take that more aggressive, more larger leap forward to what the future really should be and, and make these really transformative experiences in the products? But I was also at the same time struggling with being frustrated that so many decisions uh, we're tied to the bottom line, and, and obviously it's product development. It's about making money, which of course makes a lot of sense. But it was really uh, frustrating for me, and, and never really satisfied. I think a, a deeper desire I had to tackle larger problems that really matter. 
so kind of going through those things and, and thinking about the often kind of short-term nature of product development, uh, I started looking into longer-term strategy and innovation as a process and really started doing a lot of research online. And I just happened to stumble across Foresight uh, at that time. I think I found actually Andy Hines's book, Thinking About the Future, I think it's called. Yep. And then I discovered this whole profession, uh, the school systems, the education, uh, so many different resources, things like FuturePod, that just opened up my mind to this whole new world and and methodology for looking at the future and driving change in a more positive light. And I totally got sucked in immediately and, and fell in love with it. And uh, I have had no regrets, uh, not looking not looking back. That's great. I mean, I had a similar experience. I certainly found my tribe when I found the Futures community. But question I want to ask both of you is this notion of being inside organizations but feeling like an outsider, belonging and not belonging. Is that just the personalities of who we are or is there something more fundamental and profound going on where organizations themselves and the future just really don't mesh too well? I think in my experience, it could, it could be personality, of course, but I, I think it's more, <laughs> I think it's more just the, the nature of, at least in my experience, product development. And there's always this focus on being the first to market, getting the product out the door. Um, it's very short term and it's very focused on money and in a lot of cases with many of our clients, there's a, a aversion to risk and anything that's unknown and new is, of course, risky. And um, I think it takes a lot for people to start getting comfortable with unfamiliar ideas and mm. really be okay with exploring them. And, and to me, my team at M3, really, there were a lot of really good, innovative thinkers who really strove to to understand what's coming and what's how social change is influencing things, how environmentalism is influencing things. But there's that limitation, I think, with the market in terms of what the market wants you to do or what your clients want you to do that just kind of people tend to kind of hand wave when you're talking about holograms or AI or robots because they think it's it's so far off and, and so far fetched uh, that it makes you kind of sound like the the weird one in the room. Yeah, I think, man, that's a good answer. It's probably better than my stumbling answer is going to be. But it's such a such a provocative question, Peter. I'm glad you asked it. It's just because it's a question that I had been asking myself even before I found futures, right? It's like, what makes my role here different? Like, why am I seen as sort of the one that they throw the weird projects to? Which I like, right? There's a, there a definite benefit from that. I got to work on the most odd projects that came across any organization I've been a part of generally. So that, that was great. But at the same point in time, you know, there's a feeling of just being different, which which comes along with, with all, all, all the baggage that goes along with that. So what is it that makes that different? Uh, and I think, I think there's a comfort level a lot of people have in doing what they know, right? And for me, I find that tremendously boring. <laughs> uh, I, I want to do things that I don't know. I mean, that's kind of we, you know, as far as I know, we only got one trip around around on this on this life, and uh, you know, I don't want to just keep doing the same old thing. I want, and I think that's why I'm also a consultant, right? Because I get to work on lots of different domains, I get to work in lots of different spaces, and I get to learn, and I get to challenge myself, and I get to 
bring my experience across domains and it's a unique position to be in. So I think a lot of people just aren't as comfortable doing that. And so I, I think I think it's more of a fundamental issue uh, of personality, probably. Uh, but I don't know the answer. So if you know it, I would, I would, I would uh, be sure to fill me in. <laughs> I'm not sure I do. I know Peter Bishop thinks that there's something that we need to bring longer-term, futures-focused thinking as early as possible in the education system, that to some extent people are already hamstrung. Mm-hmm. Yeah because the education system has taught them a certain way. And, I mean, you know, the thing about futures in my experience is that we're swimming against the current. The majority current is just, as as Heather said, short-termism. That's what's rewarded. That's what's measured. And we few who push against it, we are definitely pushing against the current. Interesting question as to whether you think the current is getting stronger or weaker? Mm, that's a good question. I think it's probably going, I think it's kind of diverging into two rivers and it's stronger where you're at, but the other river is also just as strong, if you will, right? It feels like we're getting to this uh, polarization of, of idea and thinking and critical thinking that we haven't seen before. So, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. It seems to be intensifying, but fractured into two very deeply divided sides. Mm-hmm. Mm, thanks. Let's go to second question. You, I'm imagining as proto-futurist, you're getting all the tools and all the frameworks and all <laughs> the things thrown at you on a regular basis, and you probably are borrowing things and trying things and also probably running away from things. But the second question, the, the kind of you know philosophy methodology question, you know, what are the frameworks that you think really speak to you and you are going to make part of your practice going forward? Being at the University of Houston and being plugged into the Futures program, like I've just loved absorbing everything that has been thrown (laughs) at me. I I just, I think all of it is fascinating and um, I can definitely see all of it can kind of fit into a program and what projects that you're doing over time. That said, I think with my background in, in engineering and kind of kind of spending the, the first part of my career around engineers who are focused mostly on harder facts and numbers and data and, and kind of these tangible things. I think the idea of building stories and scenarios really uh, stood out to me as something that was really interesting and, and able, as a way to be able to connect on a deeper level and, and maybe on a more personal level to the information that's being thrown at you because I've been in so many meetings where you're kind of talking through data points and the the point you're really trying to make doesn't always land. And I think the ability to write what you're seeing into a story has really been really informative for me in, in learning how to do that and uh, learning that also that's okay to do because uh, coming from product development, stories are not exactly uh, something in your toolkit. Mm. I think the other thing that's really been interesting to me is the gamification of futures, which we've talked about a little bit in some of our classes. Um, and I'm actually experimenting with that a little bit on my own. I'm trying to build a, a retro platformer. It's like, kind of like the old Mario games where you have a, a guy that kind of jumps around and 
trying to build scenarios into that. So each level you go through, uh, you have to make a decision and then live through the consequences and the implications of that decision in, in the next level. So as you go through the game, hopefully uh, the consequences will kind of stack up and become more intense as you go through the game. So you really got to think about what you're doing. And I'm hoping that that's a way you can kind of make scenarios more interactive, but also educate people about Mm. thinking through decisions and trying to understand the implications of their decisions on a longer timeline, even if it is just a short game. So those are the things that have stood out for me. Cool. Yeah, I love that answer, Heather. I love the fact that you brought basically a lot of the concepts in for my answer. (laughs) Um, uh, And I love the example you used about the Mario kind of the scrolling game uh, and and as a form of storytelling, right? You see, so it's not, people often don't think of games as storytelling. Uh, I myself and my family were were really big, you know, like uh, tabletop gamers, right? You have just a huge collection of games. and, And part of that is, and we teach our kids when they're very young, play, you know, adult thinking games. And part of it is teaching critical thinking but part of it's being able to tell a story, right? You tell you're creating your story as you go. There's 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 causes and effects. There's all these things that happen in, in 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 games that are directly related to storytelling. And and for me, this uh, concept of what methodologies or frameworks there there are they are tools in your toolbox, right? And depending upon the situation, you're going to find different ones that work better than others for that project, for the domain you're in, or whatever whatever it may be. But at the core I think is while all these tools are practical, what resonates with me most is storytelling. I know that there's a lot of uh, guests on on Future Pod that, and those are the ones that usually I listen to the most and listen to more than once, or that talk about storytelling because I even added that to my LinkedIn profile uh, shortly before I joined Future's program as a storyteller because that's what I felt like I had to offer that was different than other technologists. And I have a I have a um, a BA in English, right? So I actually that was my first uh, sort of love is storytelling. So I, for me, that really resonates. That's the thing. But it's not just about the storytelling. It's about bringing the people along with the story, right? Um, a good storyteller in my mind doesn't really just tell; they share and they show. And someone participating in the storytelling process, they should feel empowered to go out and share that story, right? Um, to become evangelists for it, and uh, they shape it and make it their own along their way. Uh, but this is what humans have been doing for millennia. Like this is this is what. If humans are good at one thing, it's, it's it's the ability to tell stories, right? And I think that that is our strength, and and that is what that is how we can convey these futures forward. And it's about critical thinking, and it's about being able to change someone's mindset. So it's about changing the way people think. And stories are a really good way of doing that. You know, we're moved, we're motivated, we're impassioned, and that in a nutshell, is what we need to be doing as futurists, in my mind, is the most powerful tools. If you can bring people along with the story, that's going to live a lot longer than any document or report that we create, right? Those are nice, but it really is the story that needs to live on. For me, stories are critical. The stories that I try to tell are stories that put people into the moral dilemma of the decisions they have to face. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the decisions of most significance, I think Heather called it the consequence of decisions. The consequences of decisions are the impact on people. And often decisions impact on people who were not part of the decision itself. And to me, it's about putting decision makers in that space of them accepting 
the consequences, the moral consequences of the decisions they make. Well, I think that's spot on. And in my work in AI, uh, you know, we talk about bias, right? And how, why bias gets into a lot of uh, automation and AI is because of the people involved in creating it, right? They're not intentionally adding a lot of this. It's because they're not into that story, right? Exactly what you said. They don't have that moral understanding of what it means to be somebody else in, in that story that their decisions are impacting, right? Or, or their algorithms are impacting. It's very important when we do this type of uh, storytelling too, to include those people, like you said, because it, it's, it's hard to assume that we would be able to know their story, right? Just because we think we've heard it. Not until you've actually heard their story for them telling it. And that's a very different, very different impact. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, the stories definitely have to bring the crux of the issue home for the decision makers and have them really uh, have them have a way to connect to the impact and the weight of their decision. And I personally don't think I've mastered that in, in my scenarios and in the things I've written up, but that is something I'm very keenly interested in and definitely consider as I'm working through my projects is uh, how do we convey the magnitude of what this decision really means and make sure that people are making a very well-informed decision. Yeah. You know, there's this, um, there's this game I got, it's called um, Icarus. It's a board, it's like a board, board tabletop game. The whole concept of this game is that you create a scenario, right? Uh, that you, uh, it's a city in the future that is at the end of its civilization. And so everybody gets handed out a roll card. So you have, you might be a healthcare worker or something like that, right? And I might be a, uh, a politician, whatever, right? And so it's a cooperative game. And we go around and as the game on, and we, and we kind of imagine uh, why does this city exist? What's its purpose and where do we go, right? Uh, and then cards come out to kind of prompt different questions and different different ideas. And we have to tackle those and we can either support them or not. And whether or not our decisions or our intents go forward is determined, of course, it's a game by dice roll. Uh, and, and if it isn't accomplished, like if the dice roll is not in your favor, then you add the dice to this tower that gets built up, this Tower of Icarus. And as the game progresses, of course, the tower gets higher and the dilemmas and the problems facing your civilization get harder and the tower eventually falls and that's the end of the game and that's it there's no winners and losers that's just it's a way of talking through a story through a game and but it makes you get into the mindset of the different individuals involved in this city that you're making up right it's a very provocative thought provocative uh, storytelling mechanism and i and i think we could use more of those types of things in, in futures as well yeah i think my my hope for the gamification stuff that I've been kind of toying with is that it helps put you in that seat a little bit. I still haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to do it, but I think there's a lot to be said for interactive scenarios that you can explore in one way or another and really get a feel for the material in, in more than just a reading it or kind of hearing someone speak about it. So uh, I think there's a lot of hope there. Yeah. Excellent. Third question, the uh, emerging future question, the one that says what's energizing you, what's, what's exciting you, what's scaring you, what are the kind of emerging scenarios that you're really thinking about? My project for the, the APF award was on the future of truth and mm. 
Uh, so I think some of the things that have been top of mind for me, or that at least I've been paying attention to, are just the the way social media has really changed our our language and how our, the conversation uh, on different topics, social topics and political topics, and also how that's driven so much politicization of issues around the country. And I think for me, I, as I've kind of watched it evolve, it really seems like America at this point, maybe other parts of the world too, are, are living in two totally different realities. You can see things like the Freedom Phone and Parlor and these different products that are being uh, created specifically for different uh, political and, and social ideologies. And so that's something that concerns me a lot, I think, because when you're in such a different reality from the other camp, you can't understand and shape and define the problems that you need to be working on uh, in a common language. And if you can't understand the problems that you're facing in a common universal way, then you definitely have no hope of finding a solution that works for everybody because you're not even working on the same thing. So I, that's something that in my mind is a, a really big issue that seems to just be getting uh, more divisive as the days go by. But on a, on a lighter note, uh, I do see more collaboration. Uh, I think that that does give me a lot of hope and um, a lot of people who are stepping up in their communities, taking on things above and beyond uh, their work and their job or their work and their life and their other responsibilities that they have um, and really trying to contribute and, and give back and uh, tackle some of these these bigger issues and, and find their tribe that can help them work on it. Um, and I think those innovation collaboratives and online collaboration tools and communities that are cropping up, I think and hope that those will help us solve a lot of these really deep-seated challenges that we're facing today. Yeah, I mean, th there's a lot to, to the, that, Heather, too. And uh, I, I think I, love, I loved your report on, on the future of truth. And I think that um, I think about that a lot, right? And it's a tough one. I, you know, in in my report, the the futures of, of fisheries, actually, it was the uh, the futures of pelagic fisheries in the Pacific. I found that was my first project. That was my first, you know, sort of sort of soup to nuts uh, futures project, right? And since then, uh, been in the program, uh, I've done maybe four or five more of those. And the one thing that was interesting to me is that you know when we first go into futures, we we kind of one of the first tools we learn is steep, right? Uh, the social, technological, environmental, economics, and political. Or some variation on that as as ways of looking at your domain and ways of looking at the future, right? These are things you need to consider. And it seems clear to me that there's actually two more things than all the projects that I've worked on and seen from other students that we need to be considering. And I think of it as steep, like CC, right? The first C is climate change. And that one mm -hmm. seems kind of obvious, right? Every Everything's affected by climate mm -hmm. change. And where we're going and, and how we handle it is is paramount to almost any futures project we talk about. And it's pretty much every city, even if you're not near the sea or, or not reliant on, on farmland or anything like that. You have climate refugees, increased prices, supply chain issues, you name it. So um, and we're really at the point now where we need to talk about, we're talking about a futures project. Part of that futures project needs to be how are you going to mitigate the issues from climate change? The other C is China. And this one kind of surprised me a little bit because we, we've all been talking about China forever. Growing up, you know, it was somewhat as we saw the decline of the Soviet Union, you know, people start talking about China. 
it was in science fiction. Uh, I think science fiction did a really good job of explaining uh, China that was going to be part of the future without having to say it, right? You look at Blade Runner, uh, you see a very Asian future, right? And you see other other TV shows like Firefly, they did a good job of mixing languages of Chinese and English without going into the, like, how what, what was up with China? They just kind of put it out there. So I think fiction got it right. And now we're catching up to what China's actually doing. And it's not, it's not a criticism of China. It's just a fact, right? I mean, they, they're doing what they're doing the way that they see fit to do it. But if you look at, like in my, my report, what China's doing to extend its geopolitical power at sea using fishing vessels, right? An armada of fishing vessels. It's, it's quite astonishing and it's quite clever. And you can see everything from supply chain to economics to, to everything that China's doing in its expansion across uh, Africa. They are a massive power. And look what happened when they launched a rocket back in May 2021, and it comes crashing down uh, in, in you know in the Maldives area. So it's you know that could have, that could have hit and killed a bunch of people, but it didn't, luckily. But they're just going at it full force, and so we have to be considering uh, China as well. I'm imagining that when you are taught approaches to the future, you're also taken back in time to better understand history. Mm -hmm. I believe it's fundamental when we teach future and future ideas is to go back, (laughs) to go back at least as far that we want to go forward, possibly even go further back to really understand deep time, Mm -hmm. the long processes that are involved. And you're right, China's a good example and climate's a great example of something that's been happening over long time frames, time frames that are much longer than lifespan. They're kind of meta time. Interestingly, I heard Heather talking about something that is almost almost operating on as fast a time as possible, which is the whole social media stuff. Mm-hmm. So you've actually got these two things. You've got these long processes of climate, these long processes of civilizations. And you've also got this incredibly fast temporary cycle time. And the two the two are kind of occurring simultaneously. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because obviously they are happening simultaneously. And, and to a certain extent, I think they're feeding each other a little bit too. Yeah. The whole idea, I mean, China and truth just in general, I think is an interesting topic because they, they want to control it, right? I mean, everybody wants to control it, but they, they actually go to quite extensive measures to control what, what truth is and who gets to see what. How is that, that rapid cycle you're talking about, how does that impact the outcome, uh, the real outcome of what we're going to see in both uh, climate change and in China and our, and our relationship to China as the U.S. policy changes and, and other international policy changes towards China uh, based in the large part because of what's happening in the media right, and people's reaction to that? The question of cycle time is really interesting. I'm I'm working on this project uh, with a team at the University of Houston. We're looking at all these different sets of scenarios and kind of analyzing how things have played out since they've been written and how that compares to the different scenario sets. And it's astonishing how many of them have really not moved very far since they were written. And we're trying to find historical sets back from... Uh, the the 90s, the early 2000s. It's it's amazing when you look at the scenarios that were written back then, how it feels like so much has changed and has changed so quickly, but really 
in the the scope of those scenarios, we're really not very far along. And I mean, is that because when we were writing those scenarios, we were just so much inside our own view of how time happens and we weren't open to the possibility of things moving dramatically differently or dramatically slowly? <laughs> I think that's a great question. I don't have a great answer for it other than I think I think it's hard to anticipate how much society is going to push back against something or move in a different direction from the thing that you're looking at. And it's, it's very difficult, I think, to anticipate that. And maybe that's a, a part of the field that could use some development. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think the pandemic surprised me a lot of ways. Um, in particular, I really felt like this was, as horrible as it is, I really felt that this was going to be a shining moment for humanity, right? <laughs> um, and I was like really excited about that part of it, right? Because I work in emerging technologies and, you know, I consult with lots of different domains and I could just see like, wow, we can finally come together. We can do all this stuff. We can solve a problem together. This can unite us with all the, the vision we've seen, you know, in, in the US and the UK and other places. This is going to be our come together moment. And what really struck me was how opposed so many people were to change, not just the change of the pandemic, but to, to all the effects that was going to have, both good and bad. Having that pandemic really show us what we could and couldn't do when push comes to shove, I think was sobering and kind of showed why maybe as futurists, we kind of predict how people are going to react to change, right? Or how people are even going to drive change. And this seemed to me like it was going to be a pretty clear cut case of how we were going to move forward in certain areas. And it just went completely the other direction for me, uh, for my expectations. And so now you ask, you ask that question, Peter, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, like it seems almost like, how, how do you gauge that when when we look at a future and we think we know what's going to happen and we just see it go completely sideways from that? I think the people at Post Normal Futures, Zia and, um, and Geordi and, 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 and others, they talk about the notion of the black jellyfish, the black swan and the third black, I'm trying to think which one, I think it's a black elephant. This notion that we ourselves as futurists need to shock ourselves. Otherwise, we are just we are just running the same ideas around and around and around. And they aren't mm -hmm. that interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I think as futurists, you know, people and even like, you know, people were predicting a pandemic. But I don't think anybody really predicted or like you said, shocked themselves enough to say like how we would react in this way. I think that was the thing that has probably caught most people off guard. I think that makes a good point. I think we do need to shake ourselves out of our own ways of thinking to some extent. And granted, I'm still new to the field, but I think that's always good to do. I, th I think it's always appropriate and useful and beneficial to push a little bit further beyond the conventional way of thinking about something or kind of the standard way of thinking about something and really dig to get to that point where something catches you off guard because those are the moments where you really find, I think, true innovation. And, and that was something um, I think I learned personally from my experience in product development, you know, sitting in brainstorm after brainstorm, trying to solve different problems. You never just give up after the first hour of a brainstorm and you've got 
a dozen solutions and you think you've solved it. I always kept digging until I found something that was unusual and something that I hadn't thought about in that way before or something totally different industry or technology or whatever. And those were the things that really made the difference in projects and really turned um, what we thought about those products on their head. And that those were the things that always made products more successful in the long run because they made them so different and approached the problems in a different way. Thanks, Ava. Fourth question, the communication question. I'm sure this is one that uh, all students uh, encounter the second day at, you know, or their first day back in the workplace when someone says, so what are you studying? <laughs> <laughs> so how do you describe what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? The, the truth is I never explain it the same way twice, right? Because I, I, I think that's a tough one. Um, it just really depends. And this isn't really too different from the rest of my career being a technology consultant. Someone says, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a solution architect. And they go, oh, so you work on buildings. Like, no, <laughs> not really. Uh, you know, so then I say, well, you know, I help people figure out the solution to their problems, right? Their technical problems or whatever it is, right? You know, so they come to me with a problem and I help them figure out how to, how to solve it, how to implement it. For me, futures is, is really, really similar, except I'm not really solving a problem. I'm actually helping them come up with with what the problem is in the first place or what the problems could be in the first place so i, I you know i typically tell people i'm a you know uh, i'm a consultant and i help people think more critically about about possible futures you know and what could possibly happen i know like my older kids my grown kids that are you know out of the house so you know they kind of snicker a little bit about like like like, like dad's futurist ooh, you know kind of a thing <laughs> but my 10 year old she gets it, right? And she, she works on assignments with me and we get it. And she can explain it better to her friends than what I do than I can explain it to people because <laughs> she's, for her, it's not a weird thing. And she doesn't, she doesn't come with that baggage that people don't understand what it is. And so when someone asks that question, it's like, oh man, how am I going to do this, right? It's like you have to psych yourself up to answer it a lot of times because you, again, you have to kind of know where they're coming from and meet them there. So for me, depending on who I'm speaking with, I like to say that it's like history, but for the future, because that seems to provide a, a familiar framework for people to work with and kind of understand. So I walk them through that we're, you know, just like history, we're looking at trends and events and different things that have happened and trying to contextualize that information and understand it. And then, you know, in history, you, you look at how that's shaping today and how it influences the things we do today. And Foresight's just like that, except we're looking at what's happening now, the trends and events um, that are happening now, and we're projecting that and trying to understand how it's going to shape the future. So I, I like to explain it that way. It, it just seems to help people kind of wrap their head around it a little bit more. And then, of course, if they want more detail, I jump into how we do horizon scanning and think about implications and build scenarios and all that. And then I, I like to end on really the point of it all being about setting the vision for the future, making sure that we understand what that vision is and uh, that it's really about giving people some agency and a voice in shaping that future uh, to be the future they would like to live in. One of the things I used to talk to students about was what I called the people having a foresight appetite. In other words, people having a preparedness 
to to come towards foresight, to come towards futures thinking, to actually seek it rather than have it offered to them. Is your sense, say since the pandemic, that we've actually got a better, we've got a we've got an expanded appetite for foresight out there, or have we actually got a constrained appetite for foresight? Uh, my experience has been that it's increased, I would say quite dramatically in, in my experience. So my, my current job is running a, a foresight subscription program, and I'm not so sure it, it would exist if the pandemic hadn't happened, um, because I, I think a lot of what has happened recently in the United States with the pandemic, with the polarization and, and partisanship of politics, the cities and communities around the nation are really struggling. The leaders are really struggling to make sense of everything. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of pain in trying to figure out what's what's going on. And so there is a huge appetite, uh, at least in, in this population that I'm working with, to make sense of what's going on and to better anticipate change and to be more proactive in addressing uh, the things that are happening. So in, in my experience, I think it's it's ramped up quite significantly. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it was, for, in my experience, what I've looked at, it hasn't been di- as a direct result of the pandemic, meaning that it wasn't because of the virus itself, right? I think a lot of people could envision a pandemic and what it was, what it could be, right? I think for me, it was all the little side things that really kind of, like I said, shocked people, like like lack of toilet paper, right? When it first started here in America, I think people didn't really imagine an America where you couldn't buy toilet paper um, or you had to wait in long lines to get some of this stuff or there were limits on these things. I think for a lot of Americans, that was a, a, a wide wake up call. Mm. And so the idea that, oh, we need to be thinking of these things and these ideas can exist, I think is now something that uh, is a shared experience. And that, that is one of the, the benefits will come out of this because as we move into more of the effects that are going to be happening from climate change, then now people can start to realize, oh, I can envision a world where I can't get the supplies I need or lumber is 20 times the cost or these things can can happen. And if the pandemic can do it, then something even larger like climate change, what can that do? And I think that is opening up people's appetite, if you will, for things like foresight and futures and being able to actually critically think about what's going to happen and not just, you know, the next quarter. Good. Well, we're at the last question. So what do you want to finish with? Finishing with more or less where we started from, which was around the idea of, of storytelling, as how powerful it is and how critical thinking is a part of that, right? It, it helps people to understand cause and effect um, and, and how the world can work and how futures can evolve. And so for me, and uh, you know, Peter, you mentioned this as well. Is like, how do we teach this in schools? How do we how do we get people to start thinking about futures? How do we get people to think more critically? How do we get storytelling back as a skill that we all have instead of just consuming little tiny bits of information and very very short, you know, tweets and things of that nature? So how do we how do we move forward with a new mindset? And um, that is what I really would like to focus part of my career on. I'm moving past when I graduate next May is to you know work on community building, work on storytelling with futures, um, and just help make this part of everyday parlance, if you will, uh, getting people to really just think about it and, and use it in their everyday lives. 
Yeah, I think for for me, I think the the community has been such a big part of being part of the the program at, at the University of Houston and it just kind of entering this field. The ability to to meet other students like JT that uh, have a passion for this sort of work and and certainly a knack for it has just been so thrilling. Being able to to bounce crazy ideas off the wall and and talk about trends and talk about uh, these weird technologies that we're seeing. And it, I really have enjoyed being part of that community and contributing to it. And I'd love to see that continue to grow and uh, mature as we go on and, and, of course, invite more and more people to it. Uh, and, and like JT said, I echo the sentiment that, you know, it would be great uh, and, and something to aspire to, to bring this to more people in uh, society at large and, and really in, try to instill this long-term thinking, strategic thinking, critical thinking, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, very creative thinking to more and more people, because I think the more we can do that, the better off we'll be as a, a society, a people, a, a planet. I think the creativity of the people and the community, and, and especially the design futures and speculative futures community, I think there's a lot of really interesting and fun ways that we can make it accessible to people, kind of teach them the elements of foresight. Uh, in ways that maybe they don't even know that they're necessarily in a lesson because they're having so much fun thinking about these interesting ideas. Um, so that's that's kind of what I hope to see, I think, in the future. Well, firstly, congratulations on your awards. The first time the APF have awarded equal first. Well done. And on behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out to have a chat. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. We I really enjoyed being here, being part of the conversation. Yeah, and, and same here, Peter. Just, uh, just it's a huge privilege and an honor to to both win the award and to be here with Heather. Can't, couldn't ask for better company, uh, and uh, just uh, just super excited about everything that FuturePod and the Futures community is moving forward with. So, thank you for that, letting me participate. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.